0: What's going on, everybody? This is Tanner from TMABaseballFan.com. I am actually podcasting from my office this evening. Uh, I wanted to read to you all a little bit, so I think we're going to have a fun time tonight. Uh, Before we do, just wanted to uh, acknowledge Mike Trout being the American League MVP. I was watching this closely because I didn't know if it was going to be Trout or Bregman. Um, Very interesting, very interesting. always makes me wonder... uh, what kind of impact in uh, you know, the postseason has for an MVP and especially uh, when it comes to this, uh, this, this Astros uh, cheating thing as well. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with, uh, with the voting, but I guess you never really know, you know what I mean? But uh, um, it's kind of funny just as a little, a little side note here. I noticed that a day or two ago, I think it was yesterday when the news broke about the Astros, there was a, hashtag trending that said hashtag Astros cheat. So I took that hashtag and I ran a poll saying, uh, what do you all think? And there are four options. One, the Astros are the only team that cheats. Uh, Some teams cheat, most teams cheat, and all teams cheat. Uh, And interestingly enough, out of the nearly 400 people that took my poll, uh, only 9% said they believed that the Astros were alone uh, in cheating. So I found that very interesting. So, you know, before anybody starts uh, demonizing the Astros, I guess we probably got <laughs> to be careful and, and see if this is like a, a baseball-wide thing or what. I just honestly, though, I don't really have enough information to form an opinion one way or the other on this whole situation. Um, I do fi- I do find it very unfortunate. I mean, I certainly don't like hearing my hometown uh, having any sort of uh, negative connotations attached to them whatsoever like this. But um, yeah, we'll be watching the story closely as it unfolds. Um, but for tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to do something pretty fun here, I think, anyways. Uh, I've got a uh, uh, a copy of uh, Beckett Baseball Monthly from August of 1992, which, interestingly enough, let me check the cover the year when I was on Beckett. Uh, I was... I think this is, yeah, I think I was on August 2015, so it's, uh, um, yeah, same month, interestingly enough. So, yeah, if you check out the August 2015, uh, uh, Beckett, you'll see me and Ken on the front cover. Uh, It says Volume 15, Issue 7, I guess is what that is. But uh, anyways, we're not going to be taking a look at that one. We're going to be taking a look at uh, another one where another member of the Bash Brothers is on the cover. And it was during his playing days, and this is Mark McGuire, August 1992, Issue 89, Beckett Baseball Card Monthly. So interestingly enough, um, I don't know if you have any, uh, any vintage Beckett magazines laying around, but this is like the greatest thing to have in your hands uh, as a kid, <laughs> to be able to just look through and check the price tags and uh or the price guys, the up arrows and down arrows. Gosh, y'all, we we lived and died by those up and down arrows, didn't we? It was uh it was something fantastic. We loved it every every time the the new Beckett Monthly came out. And it was a special magazine because it wasn't like one of those magazines at the uh store that would have like uh you know really noisy, crowded covers uh on the front and back and everything. Beckett Monthly in the early 90s, late 80s. I don't know when they changed the format, but it's a very clean cover. Like there'd just be like one photograph and it's a Beckett Baseball Monthly on the front. And then there would be an accompanying baseball card of the player. So for instance, this one right now that I'm holding is just this beautiful, bright picture of Mark McGuire having already swung a bat. And uh, to the left middle uh, of it is a picture of his 1989 upper deck card. Now you look at the back and there's no text whatsoever. It's literally just a picture of black Jack McDowell and his 1992 Bowman card. Uh, I mean, it is just an ingenious, classy kind of magazine. And that's why uh, um, one of the reasons I think we, we loved it so much, but um, you know, a few things about this also, by the way, this is kind of a little fun story uh, is I picked up this, uh, this specific issue just because it was at a box in a box uh, in a garage sale uh, about a month ago, I think. Uh, I took Atticus around garage selling to kind of help him uh, see how he can uh, buy some things to flip and make some money uh, through garage selling. And so we came across this one garage sale, had some uh, magazines. One of them was this Beckett, and I go, yeah, I'll go ahead and pick it up. We'll see what's there. Uh, it'll be a fun thing to do so I pick it up as I when I come back a couple things that were kind of fun that happened Uh, number one uh, I got a message from uh, the lady that was running the uh, uh, the actual garage sale and she's like hey Tanner um, you probably didn't recognize me but um, uh, it's me you're the one or I'm the one that uh, you got that magazine from and uh, I was like, "Oh, that's crazy!" And it turns out it was a girl that I went to high school with, so that was kind of fun. Um, the other thing, which is pretty fun, was uh, as it turned out, I didn't—I forgot about this, but I looked at the back. Uh, Blackjack McDowell—he's—he's um, he's a pitcher for the white socks and i don't know if he played anywhere else um but anyways <laughs> it turns out i'm facebook friends with him <laughs> so i uh, i showed some pictures on facebook and I, I tagged him in it and you know he commented he's like oh hey yeah and so it's kind of fun it's like i remember this issue when i was a kid never in a million years why i have thought that I was just like a that i'd become a facebook friend with uh, somebody that's actually on the back cover of it so that was kind of fun so obviously um You know, another thing for Beckett cards or Beckett monthly, uh, the name is kind of what inspired uh, inspired me to uh, name our son that. So Beckett. So we love the name Beckett, but obviously it means a whole lot more and a whole lot more different uh, kind of thing nowadays uh, than it did when I was a kid. But um, uh, because. uh, you know, with as much as I talked about or said the name Beckett when I was younger, I say it a whole lot more now, obviously. <laughs> um, but anyway, so in the, another fun thing before we actually get into this, uh, which, uh, which has been great. Um, turns out that Dr. James Beckett, uh, has his own podcast and, uh, I just, man, I just got a kick out of that. So because I just you know adore uh what he's done uh for the hobby and just just love it and also of course my kid is almost basically named after him (laughs) uh you know i i remember that uh in one of his podcasts like his first one i guess uh he said hey um if you're if you have any questions or suggestions for the show um Go ahead and, and email, and uh, you know we will be happy to get back with you. And he, he said something like, "Of course, I won't personally be able to get back with you, but dot dot dot." So I figured I'd go ahead and reach out to him, and uh, you know I, I wasn't really expect expecting anything, but you know I told him who I was, and uh, you know, I told him about the book that I wrote, and and all this. And so uh, it took about a week or two, but he actually wrote back to me personally himself. Uh, And he told me that he really enjoyed my book. So like, holy cow, right, that was just, that was the greatest thing ever to hear that he actually read my book and enjoyed it. Um, But he also um, said if I'm ever in his area that he'd love to have me on his own podcast. So at some point uh, I'll be making a trek up there and you'll see me or hear me at least on his, on his podcast. So that'll be a blast. I'm I'm so looking forward to that. And also, I'd love Beckett to um, to meet him. Obviously, I'd love Atticus to meet him too, but it's kind of fun just that they uh, share the same name. But anyway, so um, yeah, we're gonna crack open the cover of this uh, of this puppy here. And uh, I talked about how the front and back cover, they're glossy, it's almost like, it almost reminds you of like a mother's cookies card, if that makes sense, um, just with how clean it is, the full bleed photographs on the front and back so you open it up and inside the cover um, it says get ready for another smashing year and it's got a a chrome baseball that's gone through some glass and there's like uh, pictures of uh, some 1992 leaf cards howard johnson cal ripkin and this is for 1992 leaf and uh 92 leaf was probably the most forgettable year um, as far as base card goes so uh 90 was the was the big was the big daddy of course Ninety-one was kind of fun because it had the, the first time we had the great borders. Ninety-two just, eh, you know, I don't think anybody really really got excited over them. Ninety-three, of course, went to the glossy and looked completely different. So, uh, so that was kind of fun. But um, going into the table of contents, I mean, it's kind of fun to look at. Uh, you see a picture of uh, Kirk Gibson and and Barry Bonds and Dave Winfield. Uh, there's a uh, quote. It's a collectible quote from Joe Adcock of the Milwaukee Braves. It says uh, trying to sneak a pitch past Hank Aaron is like trying to sneak the sunrise past a rooster. <laughs> I love that. Um, there's a uh, Super Nintendo advertisement for extra innings. I don't even remember that. Uh, we've got a, uh, uh, an article of uh, on Mark McGuire, which is pretty cool. Um, and just kind of going forward, uh, there, there are a few things that I want to hit. Hit on once I uh, once I get to them, but here's another advertisement. This is for Denny's the 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 Grand Slam cards. I don't know if y'all remember this or not. Um, I guess they're from 1992, but they're like full holograms, um, and uh, they looked really nice. They weren't bad looking at all. Uh, so going forward, uh, there's another one. It says uh, another advertisement. I guess I'm kind of gravitating toward the. The autographs or the uh, the advertisements but um, it says Upper Deck Action Ted Williams style and it shows the little Ted Williams subset that's a 1992 Upper Deck um, you know and it, the, it boasts of the card company Upper Deck voted card set of the year three years in a row uh, Upper Deck bats a thousand with collectors um, the Upper Deck Company honors this legend with his own nine card baseball baseball hero series and uh, I feel like uh, yeah yeah okay I thought that there was an autograph deal in here so so it says uh, it's an upper deck exclusive all highlighting his many great moments plus the biggest hit of all 2500 Ted Williams personally signed or personally autographed cards randomly inserted in our low series foil packs um, and then there's a quote of Ted Williams that says hitting is the most important part of the game um, I just I find that amazing like you imagine back in 1992 there were two thousand five hundred autographed uh, inserted cards of ted williams um i don't know about you i never heard of anybody pulling any of them you know which is kind of crazy um but uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of fun here um let's see here there's something that's, there's an article it's called what's in a name it says plenty for some teams you may never look at team names on your cards quite the same way uh, this is interesting. I'm, wait- I'm going to look for the Giants here uh, if it comes up because uh, th- I've actually been wanting to find out about this or uh, refresh my memory about the Giants if it, uh, if they're in here. Okay, San Francisco Giants says, known as the Gothams during its early days in New York, the team adopted a new nickname in the 1880s after a comment by elated manager uh, Jim Mutri. During the season, a great victory propelled the club into second place behind Cap Anson's Chicago White Stockings. Moutri excitedly proclaimed to his team, my big fellows, my giants, we are the people. Upon moving to San Francisco, team officials uh, kept the name due to the great popularity and success the club enjoyed in the Big Apple. Um, I don't even think that's actually all of the story. Uh, From what I recall um i believe um i'm gonna have to check i'm gonna have to do some research on this uh but i believe that the uh, gothams had two players um i'm actually gonna pause this right now and and do a search real quick hang on okay also i've got a little bit of a factoid here for you um i thought that this is the case there's a uh, baseball player by the name of roger connor Uh, and if you've never heard of him before you're not alone there's a lot of people that haven't Um, so Roger Connor was actually uh, the first home run king, and uh, uh, so everybody thinks that Babe Ruth is the first home run king, but is actually Roger Connor in the 19th century. Uh, and interestingly enough, I think he uh, he was relatively unknown, and uh, I think he was uh, buried in an unmarked grave, and I think the uh, the town that he was buried. Uh, and I think the uh, town residents did something for him in 2001. That was pretty significant. But anyways, uh, I had read recently. That's why I wanted to uh, uh, confirm this on uh, uh, you know on the internet. Is it says that he was the one that was responsible because he is so big or something like that for the New York Gotham's becoming New- the New York Giants. So uh, you know maybe there's a lot of it's all hearsay or whatever, or or perhaps there's truth to it. I'm not really sure, but. Um, anyways that's pretty interesting so I'm me do a couple other teams here let's let's see let's look uh, let's look and see where uh, uh, let's see where the Oakland Athletics got their name from okay it says the generic name for the club was used was uh, first used in 1901 when the team was in Philadelphia since Connie Mack that was uh, that was their owner um, I believe uh, needed to differentiate his his club from the Crosstown NL franchise, the Phillies, he simply called his players the Athletics. The team name never changed, despite later moving to Kansas City and Oakland. The, sh- the shortened version of A's became popular since they moved to the West Coast. Uh, man, I could probably go for a long time with this. Let me go for the, uh, for the Cubs. Chicago Cubs. In 1902, a Chicago scribe used Cubs while uh, searching for a short name for a headline and it was officially adopted in 1907 known as the white stockings in the team's early years the club's uniforms also once read orphans and Colts. that's kind of interesting so the cubs were known as the white stockings interesting well now we've got to look for the white socks here okay Chicago white Sox. the club was first known as the white stockings the name of their cross uh, Let me try that again. The the club was first known as the White Stockings, the name of their crosstown NL rival before it changed its name to the Cubs. The NL objected to the theft of the name, so owner Charles Comiskey shortened uh, the name to White Sox. Huh. Very, very interesting. Well, let's go ahead and try Boston Red Sox now. I wasn't playing on camping here for, for this long, but I'm kind of interested now. I also want to try a few others after this. Boston Red Sox. Uh, team owner John I. Taylor's young son, who liked the color of the uniform stockings Boston, uh, of the uniform stockings Boston's players were wearing, was credited with, the, with first calling the club Red Sox in 1904. Originally known as the Americans, the team also played as the pilgrims somersets puritans and plymouth rocks although none of those names ever appeared on a card yeah that's interesting so actually here's another little tidbit for you so the first world series uh was in 1903 and the boston americans uh, actually won that won that first world series there was no world series in 1904 and if i remember correctly uh i i'm so fuzzy on my memory for this but um i feel like maybe boston was in first place and they just switched or they just uh split off or something i think john mcgraw's giants i think were going uh up against them but but john mcgraw basically was so upset about the whole you know had such a grudge against the uh, american league or something or uh gosh i don't even remember i'll have to research this some more but um anyways apparently if I remember correctly like there wasn't a 1904 World Series because John McGraw uh, made it that way (laughs) so (laughs) he sounded like he was a pretty stubborn guy but um, anyway so let's let's do one more here let's do uh, let's do the New York Yankees sports writers coined the patriotic name of the Yankees in 1909 a period of great nationalism the club was originally labeled the Highlanders in 1903 after team president Joseph Gordon built a ballpark on top of Washington Heights, the highest elevated point in Manhattan. Someone noted that one of the British Army's most famous regiments had been known as the Gordon Highlanders, a fitting name for the club because it it coincided uh, with both playing field and the name of the team president. Hilltoppers also was used. The club officially became the Yankees with their 1913 move to the Polo Grounds. Huh. Yeah. yeah, this this kind of brings back a lot of memories for me. Just remembering that I, that I would read these like voraciously and like cover to cover because it was just so much fun. Um. Yeah, let's let's go forward. Let's see. I remember there's a there's a 1992 wild card advertisement for football cards, and you know, I never really paid much attention to those. Um, sh- sh- sh. there's a 1991 stadium club uh, card of Jason Giambi looking like he's about 12 years old uh, classic best with an Nolan Ryan advertisement um, ah yes okay y'all here you go this is the hot list and the cold list so we will uh, we will read through them so the hot list is going to be 1 through 30 so we're going to start from 1 go all the way down 30. Frank Thomas, Mark McGuire, King Griffey Jr., Cal Ripken Jr., Nolan Ryan. So we know all those guys. Those are huge names in the hobby. Uh, And interestingly enough, it's got a number uh, at the end. And so I feel like that means that the month before they were uh, that number. And So Mark McGuire apparently last month was number 22 and he made the jump to number two interesting okay so six seven eight and nine might be kind of uh shocking to you so that on the hot list starting at number six phil plantier steve avery david justice and brian taylor so y'all remember brian taylor huh? <laughs> then we start with uh, 10 is jeff bagwell 11 isn't a baseball player at all it's actually a card 1992 fleer ultra i'll give him props for that that was a, that was a great looking card I could still remember the smell of those cards by the way uh roger clemens neon Dion sanders kirby puckett robin ventura will clark roberto alomar pudge yvonne rodriguez that's right i forgot there's another pudge and carlton fisk back then wasn't there uh barry bonds so barry bonds was like 19 the last month he the month before this he wasn't even ranked uh ryan sandberg chuck knobloch mike mucina reggie sanders My boy, Jose Canseco. Number 25 was 1992 Fleer Rookie Sensations. If I remember correctly, I believe those were the blue uh, bordered cards with some gold foil on them. I think there was like Frank Thomas was in it. And uh, maybe Mike Piazza. Uh, I don't remember who else there was. I think there was like Todd Van Poppel. But anyway, uh, Gerald Strawberry is number 26. Cecil Fielder, uh, Tony Gwynn my Facebook friend, Black Jack McDowell, number 29, and the last one, Ron Gant. Uh, Now the cold list is interesting, because (laughs) number one leading off uh, off in the the cold list is Jose Canseco, and it says that last month he was number one on the cold list also. So he was both on the hot list and cold list at the same time for multiple months. (laughs) Number two is Bo Jackson, three is Pete Rose, um, which I wonder if there's anybody else here um, yeah so it looks like Pete Rose is the sole player that wasn't playing anymore at this point that was on the list which is interesting uh, if I'm getting this right uh, Kevin Moss you remember him uh, he's a big deal uh, 1990 Fleer, 1990 upper deck. Um and maybe score I think too. Uh, number five cold is Don Mattingly Number six cold is Ricky Henderson, which by the way is like insane to me. Could you imagine having Ricky Henderson ever on any type of cold list? I mean, that's that's ridiculous. Uh, Oral Hershiser, Jerome Walton. Number nine, Sport Flicks. <laughs> and number 10 uh, to make uh, uh, dual mates with uh, Jose Canseco on the hot and cold list is Dave Justice uh it's pretty interesting um so that basically uh brings us into uh the price guide portion so it starts off with uh, 1948 bowman and uh i'm just going to take a few uh few looks so if you remember the price guides back then there were uh two columns there's a low column and a high column And so you would either have up arrows or down arrows on some of these cards. So I'm looking uh, through uh, all the way through to 50 Bowman. Uh, Any arrow that I see on these pages are going up. Uh, Same thing. Oh, look at this. Yeah. Uh, 1951 Bowman. uh, Mickey Mantle is $8,400 and going up. Uh, Let's see what the uh Mickey Mantle 52 tops The Mickey Mantle 52 tops is $33,000 in, and in staying. Uh go ahead and I'm going to actually go ahead and uh, jump forward to the to the 80s cuz I'm kind of curious about pricing on here. So we've got an 80 tops uh Ricky Henderson is $140 going down let me check the 63 tops pete rose rookie here because they said he's on the cold list uh let's see what's going on with him oh that's weird it says that his uh his rookie card was 750 dollars and going up even though he was on the cold list kind of strange um let's see what else okay 81 tops so if you all remember uh harold baines i think is his rookie card is in there uh i'm kind of curious to see what the price was back then uh, he might not even be listed on this or oh that's right was1 was1 tops traded or uh, yeah i can't find him um but I mean that goes to show you like uh he never really was a guy that a whole lot of us watched. Oh, here's here it is. Here it is. 81 tops. Harold Baines. It's four dollars and going down. Uh, is the same price as the Kurt Gibson, which by the way is going down also. The Nolan Ryan was ten fifty and going up. Jeff Reardon and rookie was ten dollars and going up. That's kind of interesting. Um, 82 Donruss. The Lee Smith was six fifty and going up. Cal Ripken was fifty five dollars. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, the 82 tops traded. Uh Cal Ripkin was $250 and going up. Um I wonder if the A4 FLIR update was anything at that point. Let me see here. Oh yeah, that was a hot one back in IT. So uh it said that the the set for A4 FLIR update was $750 and going up. And uh Roger Clemens 300 and going up, Puckett 275 going up, Dwight Gooden 125 and going down. Uh even the Brett Saberhagen was $48 but was going down. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? What other big ones are there? Tom Siever was $24 going down. Could you imagine paying $24 for a 1984 flare update, Tom Siever? I mean, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> uh, let me see what the Dom Mattingly is of A4 Donner. So I'm kind of curious about that. uh because that was a big deal. Oh, interestingly enough, Joe Carter's $84 was 40 bucks. Uh, So, Dom Mattingly's was $48 and going down. Interesting tidbit, you guys, on the $84 Dom Mattingly, uh, it's jumped in recent years in PSA 10 form. Uh, It actually is uh, selling for around $1,500 right now, if you can imagine that. Like, to me, that's nuts. Like, what? Um, let's see what else we have here. Uh, 85 Fleer, Clemens, and Puckett. They show him for uh, 55 and $45. Dollars. Let's see what the uh, Mark McGuire. So the Mark McGuire 85 tops. Uh, Olympic cards, $25 dollars going up. Um, now remember, even though he's on the cover of this Beckett, uh, he didn't explode in hobby, po- in hobby popularity quite like he did any other time other than uh, his uh, the home run race that he was in I think it was in 98 against uh, Sammy Sosa and those cars were going like super stupid price uh, super stupid prices pretty nuts um, and uh, oh okay so here you go so 1986 Donruss now the set here shows it's a hundred and sixty dollars and going down uh, the Jose Canseco is booking for seventy dollars and is going down at this point so if you remember um there were a lot of uh uh people that were reporting back then that like the card was going for like uh selling foreign shops like between 150 175 dollars like that was the face of baseball card collecting back then uh back in the 80s which is pretty crazy um now you can get them which you know it's kind of interesting to me like nowadays you could still get um a a rated rookie for you know 10 bucks or a little less i mean so they it's not like they you know just kind of fell off the fell off the face of the earth um a six dollars speaking speaking of which there's also like the fred mcgriff says is booking for 24 dollars. i mean i don't think you can like you probably get that for a dollar or two now i think if that um and interestingly enough also about the a six uh great uh, rookie canseco like in uh in PSA 10 form, I think it goes for like $185 or something. So, you know, if you get a perfect copy of it, it still can go for go for a good clip. Um, 87 Fleer, I'm kind of curious about. The Kevin Mitchell was $7.50 and going down. I mean, that's like literally a nothing card now. The Will Clark is $28.00. Uh, Bo Jackson was 10 and going down. By the way, I love A7 Fleer, A7 Donner's. A7 top Soup. I always like the A7 Fleer and Donner's better. Um, let's see what else there is. Let's go to uh, 88 score rookie and traded. Um, this is kind of funny. This is a, uh let's even see if he'll, if he's listed here. Uh, how funny. Yeah, so the, the Roberto Alomar was $55 and going up. The Craig Biggio was $5. And that's that's kind of the main one. Let's go ahead and go over to eighty nine 9 Upper Deck. Uh, factory set showed that it was $190 and going down. Uh, the Griffey was $60. I think you could pick up a raw copy for about 20 and, and interestingly enough, I mean, I think there's probably a million or two of those that were... Um, that were produced, uh, the A9 on Protect Griffey. Um, you know, obviously, if you, if you do a search on Google, there's a lot of uh, stories about like how many were printed after the first run and so on and so forth. But uh, anyways, in spite of the fact that there's like a boatload of those out there, uh, they still sell really well in PSA 10 form, and uh, they, uh, they're still actually increasing in value. Like I think last year or earlier this year even you could probably pick up one up for like four fifty. I think they go for five twenty five or five fifty now. So um, you know it goes to show you like the strength of the hobby, I guess. Um, you know it's not all about supply. It's you know, a lot of it's about demand. So for the A9 upper deck griffey though, that's like the face of the eighties right there. I mean that and the and the Rick face uh, uh, Billy Ripken, which by the way, let's take a look and see how much that was going for here. Uh the error card was twelve dollars. I think the the PSA ten error will go for uh, one hundred twenty five, hundred fifty now. The whiteout was the one to get. It was a uh, uh, thirty two dollar card. I remember actually opening up a case of eighty nine FLIR probably about six seven years ago, and I don't. I think I got it from a guy that I got like maybe fifteen or twenty cases of junk wax from. Uh, if I remember correctly. And I know that there was like this little index card that was taped to it. And it said uh, it said something like, possible uh, Ripken error runner with a question mark or something like that. It's like, oh man, that's interesting. So I started opening them. I'm like, uh, and it took me a couple months to get the nerve to do it. But uh, I, st- I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. So I started opening the, the packs and it's just like, you know, terrible. You know, you see one of them and it turns out, uh, it's the black box. The black box is one that's not worth anything. Um, but I ended up getting half black boxes and half of them being, uh, I think it was the uh, the Scribble, if I remember correctly. So that one here shows $9. The um, uh, thing that's interesting is it says in this uh, in this issue of, of the Beckett, it says Bill, Bill Ripken Error, E-R-R. It doesn't say Rickface, which is what I remember them saying. Maybe they got complaints or something <laughs> whenever they they put that out there so uh uh and it's kind of funny you guys like i'm i'm going through like 1990 bowman just like scrolling through uh and they're like listing so many cards are like eight cents 10 cents uh 15 cents like which is just so funny so funny to me because nowadays like they don't even bother uh printing uh any of this stuff here so uh because nobody really cares um you know if if you can get like 10 cents for a common i mean you know you're doing probably ripping off somebody <laughs> Nineteen ninety leaf of course was like a massive deal um let's see where the where the frank thomas was at, at this point so he's at 60 dollars and just uh and going down but this is a fun story here also i remember uh the uh uh dealer mike uh at the bullpen in fresno he was a uh, he was a hero of mine. Like, I just love that guy. I look forward to seeing him every week uh, to pick up some cards. I remember uh, he said, Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull out a pack here of 90 Leaf. I'm going to open it myself. So he opens it, and there's a Frank Thomas that he gets. Now, this is 1990. Frank Thomas wasn't really anything hugely massive at that point. And he puts it uh, in his case, and he puts like a $6 price tag or something. And he told me and everybody else in the story, he goes, somebody buy this because this card is going to increase in value uh, consecutively for the next 10 months or 12 months or something like that. I always thought, like, how would he know that? And interestingly enough, it did. I mean, it just continually went up in value, up and up and up. Never understood how he knew that, but it, that always stuck out to me. Um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of a strange deal. I think he's got a time machine or something. Uh, 1990 score traded um, man I love that set it's got the bright orange porters so cool uh, 90 upper deck let's go ahead and let's scroll over to 92 Bowman because that was the that was the big daddy it's kind of funny by the way as I'm scrolling by there's a 91 leaf uh, uh, Frank Thomas for eight dollars so it's going down uh the huang Gonzalez, as they called it the flc which stands for first leaf card is four dollars and fifty cents going up of 1991 leaf yeah it's just it's it's funny but sad also seeing all these cards that are like literally worth nothing nowadays um but how much we just were so excited about the values of all these here um go through 91 upper deck finest i think uh ryan klesko jim Tomy. uh pedro martinez i think it was all in those uh I went stadium club i want to see those because that was a big deal the complete set was booking at 275 dollars and going down that's that's pretty significant the frank thomas 30 bucks going down the travis fryman was eight dollars and going up <laughs> uh let's see phil plantier was 12 dollars and going down chuck nablock was six bucks um tuxedo nolan ryan you remember that one is a beautiful iconic card $15 Um, man it's amazing just the uh just how much attention was placed on the hobby uh like a laser focus for these cards back then because there's not really a whole lot of competition and uh therefore bringing the prices up i mean it's crazy uh i wonder if they have scroll uh turn back here, I think they have, uh wonder if they have 91 Donner's Elite, I'm sure they'd have it in here, let me see, because uh, those still go for good money, uh, huh, I don't think it shows the Elites, am I wrong, was this 92 Donner's Elite, why on earth would they not show those? uh i just have the i just have the year wrong let me see here no huh curious very curious i wonder why they didn't have uh why they don't have the 91 donner's elite cards in here i'm going to look one more time because that's uh it's kind of a strange deal there that was like that was a hot hot set if you remember uh a lot of these yeah they're just not here <laughs> wonder why that's crazy um yeah i remember uh you look at the uh, newer ones and they'll say like no price due to uh scarcity or something <laughs> the elites were like out uh, of 10 000. maybe they're saying the same thing oh they're too scarce we're not going to be able to <laughs> price them <laughs> how funny oh man i would love to see uh uh, Wherever they first got uh, got the price guys, and they still sell pretty well, even though they're not really all that rare. But uh, oh yeah, that's one other thing. So I'm looking for 92 Bowman. So 92 Bowman apparently wasn't out yet because uh, it's not in here either, and that doesn't make sense because the Jack McDowell 92 Bowman card is on the back. I bet you in 90 in September. probably have them so uh, here's something that's interesting we have uh, the 1992 tops gold set the gold factory set is $450 and going down oh man that's crazy Uh, let's see what else there's the Brian Taylor autograph uh, SP so they have short print back then also $125 and going up Every now and then you'll see people online that want one of them. Uh, so Brian Taylor, ninety-two Stadium Club Dome. Uh, it's for tw- uh, thirteen fifty. I feel like Derek Jeter was in this. Where was he? Uh, ch- ch- you know what? I actually have one. Let me uh, let me take a look and see what number he was. Uh, It's kind of strange to think that Derek Jeter might have been in this. Maybe it was a 93. Maybe that's what it was. I bet it was 93. That makes more sense, actually. Uh, But let me make sure. Uh, Yeah, it says 93 Stadium Club. Uh, Derek Jeter, Murphy. Okay, so that's what it was. Uh, Anyways, I, I can guarantee you it. You know, wasn't getting anywhere near the uh, recognition the uh, Brian Taylor was. Uh, how crazy though! I mean, he's—I'm I'm just blown away by these uh, uh, by these prices here. Um, ninety-two upper deck looks like ninety-two upper deck was the last one, and yeah, nothing too insane about you know as far as other pricing goes. Uh, they did have the fun cards, the ones where uh, you know, somebody would draw over them, kind of like those uh, the baseball card vandals would do. You've seen them online. So that's kind of fun. Uh, so we'll go uh, scroll through a few more here. Now the fun thing is this is crazy. Like I remember this. It, it's titled the August Convention Calendar, and it goes through and there's pages and pages. Of uh, by state, of all of the baseball card shows that are going to be showing up. So, like, you look at, uh, let's see, where is this? In California, there's, uh, you know, on July 7th, the 9th, 18th, 21st, 23rd, 24th through 26th, 24th through 26th, 31st through 1st. I mean, just in California actually has, uh, let's see, about three pages here so far oh my gosh yeah three four pages just for California alone um, and then you, you see like these autograph specials like uh, yeah this is kind of funny um, I wonder if they'll have pricing uh, Anaheim California August 22nd 23rd you have uh, uh, Andre Dawson and uh, Hal Neuhauser. Uh is there any pricing for the actual autographs I wish there were I um, Pete Rose, Raleigh Fingers, um, Willie Mays. Uh yeah, it says like Willie Mays will be a $25 autograph. Johnny Bench will be 20 uh, Ricky Henderson will be 25 uh, Steve Garvey doesn't show a price for that. Um, wonder, let's see here, uh, tony gwen is going to be signing for free oh man movon is nine dollars billy swift is seven dollars chuck knoblock is nine dollars that's all on the same show by the way tony gwen is the only free one <laughs> they have some baseball card shops uh advertisements um and uh, there's probably one more section that i want to i want to hit um and this is like the the reader's right section here we go this one's called uh, you make the call somebody writes in and says why is it that as some cards skyrocket in value they become more and more abundant in card shows an example is the 1990 lee frank thomas when this card first hit the market it was worth about five dollars uh, but it was hard to find it shows now that it sells for 70 dollars everyone has it <laughs> how funny if if only they knew if only they knew all the millions that were that were created uh, now that it now that it sells for seventy dollars everyone has it these cards are everywhere and it makes me wonder if they really are rare oh this is interesting uh, it's because dealers bought them dirt cheap and hoarded them while waiting for the price to skyrocket dealers just love it when card prices skyrocket that means more money in their pockets uh, please do not buy these cards they are a ripoff don't let dealers control the price of cards <laughs> How funny. And this is uh, Michael of Connecticut. Well, Michael, sorry, that's how it goes. Dealers are in business to make money. Uh, anyway, so the, the answer from uh, uh, whoever's responding to these uh, readers, right, says uh, you bring up some valid points, Michael, but there's another side to the story. First, if you're convinced that uh, 1990 Lee Frank Thomas is overvalued at $70 and is only worth $20 offer your copies of card dealers at twenty dollars <laughs> nice little passive aggressive response there uh, if they buy your cards then you have proof that the card is likely worth more than twenty dollars the proof being that no dealer will buy a card unless he feels that he can make a profit in its resale many collectors also were hoarding five dollar frank thomas leaf rookies thinking that his talents would soon drive its value far beyond the le- that level when the price started climbing many sold their uh, thomas cards to dealers who then resold them at higher prices in their stores an integral part of this hobby is tracking the ascent and descent of a card's value many collectors try playing this market some win and some lose don't kid yourself into believing that dealers have complete control over the value of a card while none of the cards you've seen skyrocketing values is as scar- scarce as a t213 common or a rice sticks dizzy dean Uh, Most of today's collectors uh, want to buy cards of players they can follow on television every night. A basic economic principle is that as prices rise, there are less products available than when the price stabilizes. Consumers are are the final dictators of the price. If they don't buy hot cards at a certain price, then the costs will come down. If however, the value of a card market doesn't deter buyers then the market adjusts itself until it reaches a true reflection of the card's current value and signs off as Grant, San, Grant Sand Ground. I find that very interesting because it's actually a very, uh, very interesting point uh, to make here. Uh, when it came to actual baseball cards and the values of them and Beckett Monthly, that was probably the absolute best uh, type of uh, education for economics that we could get um you know as you can tell this person michael from Connecticut that wrote and he had no clue he had no clue at that point uh um you know how the prices of things you know happened and how the values of everything happened so uh for a lot of us kids even 10 11 12 years old back then we had to grasp that uh if we wanted to buy and sell so i was i was flipping cards back then and and I, I understood that. So it's it's really kind of a nice learning experience for a lot of us kids back then. Um, let's take a look at another one here. Okay, so this one is called uh, Niceness Pays and this is by uh, former Indians player Mark Lewis. Uh, this is about him anyways. I'm writing to tell you about a great experience I had with Mark Lewis of the Cleveland Indians. I recently returned from a pilgrimage to Arizona where the Indians conduct their spring training rituals during a morning workout lewis was signing autographs for a few kids uh, when an older man pushed the kids out of the way in order to get an autograph when mark took the man's card he wrote to a rude man with no manners signed mark lewis (laughs) he he then signed the boys cards that he had in his hand one of the boys was my son Uh, and uh, somebody from beckett wrote your story says it all thanks for writing (laughs) how great Um, Somebody else says, let's see, uh, professional courtesy. Uh, I was wondering if you know why uh, players don't have time to sign baseball cards when they have time to sign pre-printed postcards. Uh, That's from Gerald of Delaware. Somebody said, a superstar player such as Nolan Ryan receives too much mail during the season to respond to it all. When it's easier to sign in the off season when he's not so pressed for time. Uh, If you consider that he signs all those photos ahead of time, you realize it's actually uh, courtesy on his part just to have items prepared to send to pans Uh, otherwise your letter might sit at Arlington Stadium for several months before it's even looked at or worse yet your card could be handled by a ghost signer making it uh... essentially worthless oh my gosh is the the answer was from Richard A. Klein I know Rich Klein I'm friends with him (laughs) that's pretty funny uh... so Rich if you're if you're listening I've uh... I've uh, read your your well thought out response there. How cool. Very, very neat, very neat. Let's see what else we have here. Okay, here's another one that Rich answered. Uh, this is uh, this is called Break them Up. And somebody says, I've been collecting sports cards for six years and just discovered your magazine last year. Now after about a year, I noticed your prices are wrong. They're too high or too low when you add them up in the set. The 1984 FLIR Update is listed for $650, but it's really worth more than $800 when you add up the values of all the cards in the set. I know what this person's talking about. I always wondered about this when I was a kid, too. Uh, the 1991 Leaf Gold Bonus is listed at $100 when it's really worth $126.75. The 1992 Donner's Diamond Kings are listed for $45 and worth $63.75. I could go on and on. Uh, I believe you should calculate your prices before putting false values in your magazine. (laughs) Nick Stokes from Kentucky. Thanks, Nick. (laughs) So Rich responds, you're overlooking the big picture here. Uh, While the values of individual cards in a set are taken into consideration when pricing that set, the values for sets and singles are not as closely intertwined as you might believe. Generally speaking, the market for singles is more active than that for complete sets. Uh, There are two reasons for this. Many collectors only purchase cards of stars of their favorite players. Uh, Others pursue singles in order to complete hand-collated sets. Uh, Both of these activities tend to propel the market upward for individual cards. Set prices, on the other hand, are usually lower than the total value of single cards because sets aren't in such great demand. It's true that sets can often be broken down into singles and sold for more than the value of the complete set however it's unlikely that you'll sell all the single cards from a set like 1984 flare update for full retail value the five key cards uh, in the set roger clemens dwight gooden kirby puckett brett saberhagen and tom seaver account for more than 98 percent of the value if the five key cards can be sold quickly then a dealer may blow out the other cards simply to get rid of them this is an interesting one here. Uh, it's called Market Sensations. Uh, I've read, like kind of bend this back here. <laughs> I would have never bent back a Beckett Magazine when I was a, when I was a kid, but <laughs> we, will, we will do it uh, do it now for the uh, sake. But I've read many letters in hobby publications recently concerning dealer greed. I assumed there were instances of greed, but it never bothered me much until yesterday. I was in a card shop when I overheard the owner talking to a local supermarket manager. They were planning for the card shop owner to purchase all the 1992 FLIR baseball jumbo packs with the Rookie Sensations inserts at the store. At one point, the supermarket manager called her store and told an employee to take all of the FLIR boxes out of the display and put them in the back room. I was shocked. It's one thing to suspect a dealer of buying up all the product at a retail store but it's another thing entirely to see the deal go down it's ironic to note that this dealer has a sign by his wax pack that buys wax packs that reads please do not search wax packs give everyone a fair chance (laughs) so they were they were aware of pack searchers back in the early 90s how funny is that this is hypocrisy uh, is he giving collectors a fair chance at a fair price, or do these rules apply only to collectors? My personal advice is uh, to collectors is to buy cards at supermarkets or discount stores when you can, before dealers can get to them. Uh, and it says name withheld by request. How interesting! This uh, adds a little bit of a mystery to <laughs> to this uh, to this little story here. Uh, somebody uh, responded, I think Rich and let's see who else. Rich and Alan Muir, Muir uh, responded, they said, one of the biggest dilemmas facing dealers uh, in today's fluctuating market uh, card market is developing a system by which they can consistently acquire the best products of the current year. Unfortunately, the, the dealer doesn't always have access to the hot product of the moment direct from the manufacturer. Sometimes customer demands force him to obtain the cards through other channels, like your example. Card companies produce several different packaging formats in order to accommodate different segments of their market. Certain formats are available only to the hobby, while others are intended solely for magazine wholesalers, who in turn distribute them to chain stores and supermarkets. Turn the page here. Fleer sellers are an example of the latter. When the Rookie Sensations inserts became a hobby rage, many dealers felt compelled uh, to use any means necessary to acquire them for their customers at the best price they could. In order to stay in business, a store owner has to satisfy his customers or risk losing them to a competitor. This dealer probably thought he was doing what was necessary to keep hot merchandise in his store as well as make a profit. We understand your frustration about having to pay, a, pay for another middleman slice of the pie buying packs of desired collectibles at a bargain at bargain prices is something every collector enjoys an option you may want to explore is locating the main office of the supermarket at, and filing a complaint about the manager's actions if this is if this isn't for you tell the owner that you've decided to take your business elsewhere and let him know why a good business person will take that into consideration next time he's forced to make such a decision Yeah, I'm really enjoying reading these because this kind of gives us a pulse on uh, the hobby community back then. Um, I really do like this a lot. Uh, Otherwise, we just read articles. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and stop this now. Let me me, uh, change a different uh, deal here. Okay, sorry. I was running out of time for that segment there. I only have... uh, uh, in our time, I can't believe I've been doing this for over an hour now. But um, anyway, so uh, this next one, card features. It's it's my firmly held belief that some of the card companies are ripping us off, uh, and <laughs> it's interesting by selling their product to discount stores like Walmart, Kmart, Target, etc. The leaders in the sports card manufacturing business have devalued their cards by flooding the market. <laughs> We're talking about. Them flooding the market nowadays we just had no idea <laughs> uh, as long as this trend continues trading cards won't be good investments Ooh, interesting for now i'll be content collecting higher price cards that can only be found in card stores rod hutton texas uh in, and the answer is i think this is from rich again yeah rich an- answer this one it's this so fun reading his responses uh in terms of potential many collectors consider premium brands to be better investments uh, since they are typically produced in smaller quantities. However, a large segment of the hobby doesn't care about the future value of cards and is just as happy to have affordable cards of their favorite players. In order for this hobby to maintain a strong consumer base in the future, cards must be accessible to both collectors and investors. If a company printed only hobby-oriented cards, Uh, it would be guilty of ignoring an important segment of its market as well as its corporate bottom line. This is kind of a fun one. This is a it's called Waiting for Help. W-A-D-I-N-G for help. My son and I are very close to completing a collection of every Wade Boggs card listed in the Sport Americana Baseball Card Alphabetical Checklist number four. Uh, As of this date we have 210 of the total and are seeking help in locating the remaining cards first of all we'll stop there can you imagine uh, there being only 210 cards of, of a superstar like that that's crazy and probably none of them were you know super rare you know as he continues uh, do you have any suggestions on where to go we've tried most of the major dealers and they shy away because what we seek isn't going to make them much money can you help del and kyle of vermont and the response uh doesn't say who, who responded to this one but says uh it's very difficult to keep up with the recent flood of releases a <laughs> yeah, big big difference now the the major problem is keeping tabs on all of the superstar oriented food and regional uh, and regional premium issues Many of which include Boggs. And It's very true. They had a lot of regional and uh, food issues and that sort of thing. It's it was really fun. Uh, not to mention like all the broder cards and all that. Uh, a good way to add to your box collection is to make your interest known to as many dealers as possible. And I got to say, by the way, that's basically what I did with my collection. Um, but it was only online. So same same deal, just different medium. Uh, specify to them what you're looking for and what you're willing to pay although they may pick up some duplicates uh, which you should be willing to purchase by the way they may also unearth some rare issue of which you've never heard Uh, in, in most cases a good dealer makes it a point to acquire merchandise for your benefit you may be lucky enough to find a dealer or two willing to do that for you especially on oddball stuff remember the more people who see or know about your collection, the more eyes you'll have searching for the missing pieces of your puzzle. If you have any Major League license box cards that we don't list in our, in our alphabetical checklist, we would appreciate it if you would inform us. This holds true for all other errata, I don't know what that word is unfortunately, I guess I'm not that smart, uh, in the alphabetical uh, book as well. Please write us to uh, p- please rise. To that bu- uh, Beckett publication, so and so forth. Uh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. I I, I kind of loved that whole thing there. They uh, you know talking about you know hey look uh, basically everything that we're doing nowadays as collectors guys we're uh, trying to get what we want uh, in front of the eyeballs of as many people out there because it's not just dealers anymore. It's like every collector is basically a dealer um, in this respect. So it's kind of kind of fun to think of it that way um, and uh, also they're talking about hey look guys uh, there we understand we recognize that there's gonna be stuff out there that we don't know about so if you could help us out we would appreciate it <laughs> I really love that this next one is called job security it says my uncle owns a card shop where I work after school business is bad right now we have a lot of cards but most of them are 1988 Donruss <laughs> you keep lowering the prices on them every month please raise them back up so we can sell our cards if we don't do better my uncle will have to let me go and stanley from california poor stanley (laughs) Uh, the answer is uh, as you've no doubt heard before we don't raise or lower card values at will but try to accurately reflect the transactions currently taking place in the market Uh, what your store and market are telling us right now is that the mass-produced cards of the late 80s are experiencing a rapidly diminishing demand hence the drop in prices Uh, with the increasing competition among card shops uh, shows and flea markets those that offer the most complete selection at the fairest prices will be the ones that retain a loyal customer base those that hope to survive by carrying only a recent uh, only recent products such as 1988 Donruss may have a, a much rougher go. Here's another one that, uh, that's actually very interesting also. Uh, California Scheming. I want to warn your readers of the proliferation of professionally doctored cards I've recently noticed in Southern California. These scofflaws, I don't know what that word is, uh, buy very good to excellent centered old cards like 54 Aaron, 55 Koufax, 55 Clemente, etc., and then re gloss them and build up the corners. Huh, interesting. Once restored, the cards are turned over to unsuspecting dealers who resell the cards to a naive public. If you have people at shows all over, you should have these people look out now for old cards in the LA area. I know you're a price guide and not, a car- and not the card police but you also have a responsibility to educate the general public to this fraud and this is written by name withheld Ha, huh. interesting 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 and you know to be honest with you guys like i didn't even hear about people building up corners and all this stuff up until probably a few months ago when all of the psa craze was going on with pwcc so uh, uh this is fascinating to me to see that this stuff was even happening back in the early 90s. Uh, let's see what, the, what Beckett responded with. Uh, Southern California is not the only area of this problem. and for, Unfortunately, restored cards have been a nationwide hobby being for years. The best advice we can give collectors is to be prepared when buying valuable older material. Read as much as possible about the cards and try to become familiar with a reliable dealer who buys and sells older material for a living. When you go to a show or a store uh, looking for that special high dollar card, it's a good idea to bring along an 8 or 10 power jeweler's loop, uh, a ruler, and a heavy dose of caution. Okay, I think this is going to be the last one I'm going to read. It's, uh, It's called Give Me a Break. I would, I would first like to commend E. Orrer of Texas for his superbly written letter in the November 1991 issue of Beckett Baseball Card Monthly, number 80, regarding the outrageous prices of top stadium club cards. I am utterly appalled by the fact that dealers expect collectors to shell out $5 a pack for brand new cards that are widely available and that are supposed to sell for $1.25 a pack. Trust me, folks. These cards are not rare. <laughs> this guy gets it, I guess. Um, neither are the 1989 Upper Deck cards or the 1990 Leaf cards or 1989 Score football cards. For your information, nothing that Tops makes is rare, as most people know. Dealers are making out like bandits, selling them for four times their cost. My advice to the dealers is give us a break, will you? Don't be so selfish. <laughs> Let us collectors buy a few packs, all right? If these cards are red hot now, but in a few years they will be selling for $1.25 a pack, I guarantee it. The answer uh, is uh, here's the answer. Uh, while some of your points concerning relative availability and high cost of Stadium Club packs are valid it is a secondary market and the consumers actually determine the price uh, the market will, will bear. In a perfect world, collectors such as yourself, would be able to buy those attractive packs at the suggested retail price unfortunately many thousands of avid collectors are absolutely thrilled that tops finally produced a high quality collectible and are willing to pay the going rate to get it dealers were faced with the dilemma of having to please those consumers as well as trying to meet the demand of collectors wanting to buy the packs as such they also want to or want the or want. They also went to the convenience stores and other outlets to beef up their stock. Dealers who provide a valuable service should be allowed to make a profit. In addition, many dealers who sell packs of Stadium Club and other premium products have to buy the packs themselves from other hobby uh, wholesale sources at inflated prices. It's far from common for a car dealer to have a continual rock bottom retail outlet or candy tobacco wholesaler available as a source for low-cost stock. On top of that, you as a consumer have the best possible option. You can just say no to purchasing any cards at prices you feel are inflated. Whether Stadium Club packs will fall to $1.25 is is purely speculative, uh, but many collectors would find that scenario difficult to believe. (laughs) I've got a a couple sealed boxes of 91 Stadium Club and I think they probably, uh, the entire boxes i think i probably got them for like maybe 30 or 40 or something uh, each you know how funny Uh, so yeah uh, i guess they finally did fall to $1.25 a pack basically (laughs) so uh, anyways there's a few others but uh, uh, a few other articles but i think we'll go ahead and stop there Uh, you know there's a uh, um, a uh, page that's devoted to back issues of Beckett's and it has like a number of them that have sold out stamped across them and you know you keep going there's like a a Bill Swift uh, uh, article and a few other articles like of uh, Tom Seaver and and, uh, I think I like I like this this is uh, it says Beckett has the cure for the summertime blues and it has a a father and son the father's looking at the son the son is looking intently at this baseball card see if I can see what it is uh, i have no idea so so small but uh anyways there's baseball cards all across the floor uh they've got the beckett in their hand there's a baseball glove it's just a it's a cool picture but um yeah so yeah i don't know i might have to do this with a few other beckets i need maybe i'll get a few others and and just talk through them again that was fun i enjoyed it i'm then probably going to pick up a or a uh, take a few pictures of uh, some of these articles as well and post them on social media uh especially that one what was that again uh something about the doctrine of the cards i think that'd be a good one uh, to post but anyway so that's all i have for now um thank you guys for watching or well <laughs> thank you for listening you're not watching anything i guess <laughs> thanks for listening um Uh, please guys uh, like subscribe and share this podcast I would appreciate it and uh, yeah y'all have a great night